Hello everybody and welcome to Sound of Play.
Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound of Play 107 is community member uh, and industry person, Ashley Day. Ash, welcome to Sound of Play. I'm really amused by the um, the description industry person, which probably does... Um it's probably the best catch-all term for somebody who's done a little bit of everything yeah, in the well, games we'll, industry. <laughs> we'll definitely get into that. Um, yes, industry person, as in the games industry folks, not just, you know, industry in general. Yeah, I, I couldn't build any iron-mongering machines or anything like that. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, you've been a member of our lovely community for quite some time. You're a listener to both uh, this and our other podcast, Kane and Rince. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a huge oh, I'm a huge podcast listener, first of all. I, yeah. pro- um, I don't know what's a normal amount of listening, <laughs> but I, I would predict I listen to about four hours of podcasts a day. Wow, that's uh, that's some going. That's that's a lot. Yes, I, yeah. I just I just really love it. Whenever I'm like out doing chores or walking the dog, like I I need to have a podcast in my ears. Um, and Kane and Rince especially is is ideal for that because you just get these really like in depth, lengthy discussions about amazing games. So it's it's been. Um, it's been a great companion to me over the years. Oh, well, thank you. Wasn't fishing for compliments, but we'll take them. <laughs> and uh, and presumably then, as as a uh, as a, a serious podcast listener, you'd be quite happy if we hit our uh, Patreon target and managed to do even more podcasts in the future. <laughs> in, indeed, yes. Are you getting close yes. on that? Uh, no, not yet. But uh, we, are, we are, well, we're making lovely progress, but uh, we've still got a way to go, put it that way. Oh, so. yes. Oh, I would definitely like to have twice as many podcasts. Listeners, that's patreon.com slash cane and rinse uh, if you'd care to donate a dollar a month which is the minimum or more and it all gets ploughed into us doing what we do and if enough of you do that there will be more of it anyway enough of that promotional stuff uh, now Ash I don't actually know your age but I've seen your photo and you look fresh faced uh, maybe it's uh. maybe it's an old photo uh, but um, based on your your first pick there the opening uh, piece uh, for this sound of play the famous ocean loader ocean loader 2 actually uh, by Martin Galway from the Commodore 64 now I associate that with people my age I'm 45 I don't mind saying that uh, but you seem too young to be a Commodore 64 kid well, uh, am I mistaken I'm well two things I'm a little bit older than I look which is always nice yeah yeah um, bonus. Be- better than the other way around and also my my kind of history with gaming has always been a little bit further behind than it should be I see um, I think uh, so I'm 35 alright um, so I'm just about an 80s kid um, yeah, but I think uh, growing up in a household where I mean we were never poor, um, but you know my parents couldn't afford like all the best, most modern stuff. Sure, for for my brother and I. Um, so I think around the time the sixteen bit consoles and computers were coming out, that's when we got our Commodore sixty four. Yeah, um, which I think is probably quite um, quite a common thing for for kids um, in the eighties and nineties, and probably even now, actually. Um, inherit the last gen kind of thing yeah, yeah. Mm. exactly you know the you know the price of the system comes down to, to something that is reasonably affordable i think we got our commodore 64 probably around 1988 yeah. something like that it was the um you know the redesigned 
version of the C64. Ah, the S. No, C? C. C. I think it's the C, yeah. Yeah. Um, So not the bread bin, the so-called bread bin design, but the next one that they did that looked a bit more like the Amiga 500. That's right, which is where the the market was heading at that point. But still, 1988, there were still tons of classic C64 games coming out. Oh, it was was amazing. And, um, you know, in those days as well, you could... You could walk into a game shop and you could buy a C64 game for like a couple of quid. Absolutely. And, literally. And, yeah. yeah, like literally a couple of quid. And sometimes there'd be um, kind of smaller budget titles or sometimes they'd be games that came out a few years earlier and they just um, kind of transitioned onto a budget label. So you could get the yes. very best games for pocket money prices, um, which is, I, I don't think that's ever really happened Again, I mean, you get free games on iPhone now, but it's not quite the same thing. It's not the same as getting, I don't know, the latest Call of Duty game for a couple of quid. No, no. Uh, yeah, prices do sort of deteriorate over time, but not not quite in that. Right. It's a full price game. And then the next week you go down the shop or, you know, six months later, it's a budget game. And that's, you know, that's just how it works. Nowadays, prices just kind of start to they start to fall quite quickly. But then it takes a while before they get to, and they certainly mm. uh, it takes quite a long time before they get down to the uh, you, you will find things on, on on Steam sales and stuff for like two quid and whatever. But, yeah, it was uh, it was a real thrill to to be able to go to a games shop or a, or a mega store or whatever as a child with your pocket money and actually be able to buy yourself a cassette tape and take it home and play it and obviously it was always a bit of a gamble but with the re-releases you generally knew like whether a game was already uh, well regarded well received well reviewed so um, you would have heard presumably that Ocean Loader that famous tune by Martin Galway famously the nephew of the flautist James Galway I think we've mentioned that before on, on this podcast um, so if you'd gone and rebought, say, the Hit Squad re-releases of, uh, I guess, things like Grise or... Uh, I mean, it was they used it for a good couple of years from 1985 to yeah. 1987, didn't they? So, um, I mean, I, I first heard this on probably the best... 8-bit computer game ever made, in my opinion, uh, which is Head Over Heels. Oh, well, we talked uh, about that just recently on another show, so that's great. More uh, Head Over Heels, yeah. Have you done a Head Over Heels episode? We have not, but... Oh, I, that would be amazing. It's on the list, and if you finished it, then you're on the panel. Oh, I, I definitely didn't finish it. <laughs> uh, <but> I, get, <laughs> I go really back hard. to it every, every, like every decade or so. I will go back to it and get a little bit further and think, oh, yeah, maybe this time. But it is... It's a genius. Exceptionally difficult. Genius game. Um, oh, su- and such massive. a fantastic game. Mm. Uh, and like you say, like I, I didn't really when I went when I bought that game for a couple of quid in in um little shop called Microbyte in Wakefield. Um, I had no idea what to expect. I just liked the artwork of these little kind of um, dog creatures yeah. on the front cover, um, head and heels as that as they were. Um, and I just thought, well, that's good enough for me. That looks fun. And a very young and impressionable age I took it home and played it and even then I could see this is something that's quite special and and way way above the quality of many of the other games I've been playing Mm. Um, but of course back in those days you had to wait an awful long time you had to be quite patient for the games to load Um, oh yes with ocean games um, that waiting time was made so much more bearable by these amazing uh, loading sequences that they had um, so I'm sure you remember they would um, draw in these um, kind of high-resolution teaser images. Yeah, title screens, flash screens, whatever yeah. you want to call them, yeah. 
and it would it would like draw in line by line and I would be fixated. Mm. I mean, nowadays I'd probably just go off and make a cup of coffee or something. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but I would just sit there like watching this picture draw in line by line. What's it going to look like? Oh my God, it's Rambo. I'd be so, mm. <laughs> so, um, so excited. Uh, it was a simpler time. Um, but you'd also get um, what I think is an unbelievably brilliant piece of uh, chiptune music, yeah. um, which um, I've colloquially called the lo- ocean loading theme for, for some time, but apparently it's called the ocean loader. Mm-hmm. What do I know? Um, and they Close. would, for, yeah, um, from what I understand, they would get um, different kind of 8-bit computer composers to uh, contribute these themes uh, to various yeah. ocean games. And I, I, I did hear that originally the idea would be that there would be a different loading theme for every single game that Ocean put out. Hmm. That was ambitious. They, they put it's on, ambitious, yeah. They were prolific. They put a lot of games out, so yeah. I think I think they ended up going with about five different themes in the end, which Sounds were, were right. paced over the, the lifespan of Ocean's uh, C64 games. Yeah. And uh, they're all fantastic, but I think Ocean Loader 2, for me, has a special place in my heart because... That's the one that was used on Head Over Heels, um, which I, you know, was as I've gone over, it was a really special game. I think it was on Rambo Two, mm-hmm. uh, might have been on RoboCop as well. Mm. T- to get really kind of poetic about it, mm-hmm. there was something about playing uh, computer games in those days when you know I was young, the medium was young. It was so exciting just to play a video game. Yeah, there was something about that. Probably, I'm not sure people who grew up with consoles and arcades could probably relate to just as well. But there's something about being made to wait for that experience uh, that made it just that little bit more pleasurable uh, when it finally came. Yes, Um, like so many things in life. Yeah, exactly. I I kind of felt like, you know, playing games in those days was like being transported to this other world. So the ocean loaders were like, they were the the portal that took you Mm -hmm. to that other world. You know, you're, you're, you're sitting there transfixed by this strange imagery and um, otherworldly sound as you get ready to go into whatever world it may be on that particular day. And again, that's kind of unique to the time. Mm. You know, it doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah, I think that resonates for me. And, and uh, yeah, I'm sure it's exactly that sense of, of being transported that's kind of made video games this hugely important thing to so many of us and certainly everyone who listens to uh, the podcast that we put out. Uh, I'm still envious because I, uh, my friends had Commodore 64s and some had Spectrums and I was, even back then I was format agnostic. I just wanted to play all the best games on on whatever systems there were. But I had my, as I've mentioned before, my Atari 800XL, which was a wonderful computer in many ways. Um, technically, it was, it was one of the the best machines on the market uh, but it wasn't such a, a big commercial success over here uh, so the the other three the the uh, Commodore 64 Spectrum and Amstrad got all the all the major titles and and we were lucky sometimes to get ports of things uh, we did get head over heels for instance and things like that but lots and lots of games didn't come and the games that did arrive uh, there was a there was a way around. Um, I don't uh, quite early on in the Commodore sixty four's life. Somebody worked out how to do what they called a turbo load, which is mm. uh, which massively sped up 
loading times from the original sort of 20 minutes right down to sort of five or six minutes for a cassette, uh, which was uh, much more tolerable. But on my computer, that was not that turbo load technology was simply not possible for, for whatever reason that I don't fully understand. Um, so I was forever taking you know uh, there there were some games which were obviously smaller games which only took four or five minutes to load but generally most of the games that I wanted to play took 18 to 20 minutes to load each time and it, it was really flaky as well loading errors were commonplace uh, so there that that uh, that feeling of being transported from you know normal real life earth to the video game portal it felt like you were on a very shaky rickety mm-hmm. kind of craft of some kind it was likely to fall apart uh, normally in the last few blocks, of course. And being on cassette as well, magnetic tape, famously, it deteriorates every time you use it. So uh, every, you know, the more you played a game, the less reliable it became as well. So, uh, yes, and, and I know this is uh, two, uh, obviously you're, you're a decade younger than me, but uh, two men of a certain age being misty-eyed about things being worse. But, <laughs> yeah. but Weren't things better when they were worse? Yeah, but... But there was something. There was there was definitely something, and also I had some cartridges for my my Atari. Uh, there were some uh, Commodore sixty four cartridges. Well, I don't know if you had any. Um, I didn't. They were some very the, expensive. They were very expensive. There were some at the beginning of the machine's life, and some again at the end when they released the was it the GS or something the the the, the Commodore yeah, sixty four without the, a keyboard. The, yeah, um, and yeah, no tape drive. So it's just. Just the cartridge. Slot. Yeah, so there was a little flurry of cartridges late on again, uh, and obviously they were cool because they went straight. They were ROM, and you just they went straight, dumped straight into memory into the the sixty four K that you had to to play with. But yes, amazing times. And even though, as I say, I wasn't a Commodore sixty four kid, I was endlessly envious of the Commodore 64s that my friends had and I used to go around and play some of these uh, incredibly cool games and and yeah the sound of that sound Sid sound chip is still evocative to me of the time oh, it's, even it's, even it's amazing and I'm not a I'm not a technical um, expert when it comes to games hardware um, I'm very much a go on Wikipedia and research it sort of person um, but I do mm. understand that you know obviously the Sid chip is is beloved among um, enthusiasts and among uh, video game musicians, for sure, and you can you can really tell when you listen to to that loading theme, like how much fun uh, Martin Galway must have been having with the the various sound channels that the SID chip gave you. Yeah, it just keeps it. You know, it starts off with that very basic do 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 tune, and then just layers one instrument after another on top until it. By the end of it, it's a completely different tune. Yeah, there was there was a real thing about these kind of pr- almost prog like pieces. Yeah, actually, I, I'm really into like these days as, in terms of my musical tastes. Mm. I really love like uh, prog rock and uh, kind of uh, power metal, which you know you'll have like 12 minute long tracks that have ridiculously complex yeah uh, layers <laughs> and solos. Maybe it all started with um, Sid chip music. Could be so, yeah. Uh, and one of the, the greatest exponents of that was uh, our next artist, Tim Follin. Uh, oh, yes. This is a 16-bit piece of his, uh, as requested on the forum by Code Monkey, who actually says, having never heard of Tim Follin before listening to the podcast, Sounder Players musically educated me in the genius that is Tim Follin, and I've tracked down some of his fantastic tunes to share with you all to enjoy. Just simply awesome. This is the Amiga version. There's also a 64 version, but I think the Amiga version 
Foundation edges it for me. And this is from the home computer only Gauntlet sequel, uh, as US Gold had the license. Gauntlet 3, The Final Quest. This is the title theme. Tim Follin, I would say unmistakably from the Commodore Amiga uh, Gauntlet 3, The Final Quest, which is a Gauntlet game I didn't play. It went isometric after my beloved uh, Gauntlets 1 and 2, the top-down games. Ah, I didn't know that. I, I likewise have not played Gauntlet 3, um, mm. despite having played the first Gauntlet to death on yes. various systems and in the arcades. 
yeah, yeah. it's quite interesting. Huge fan of of the Gauntlets. Uh, yes, yeah, so Gauntlet Three was one of. Um, you're probably aware. US Gold used to do the thing where if they had the license to a game and it and it was a hit, they would often make a kind of home only sequel. Not just oh, yeah. not just US Gold. O- Ocean did it as well with Renegade and things like that. Uh, so yeah, Gauntlet Three was a completely you know um, developed in the UK. I'm pretty sure for computers. Um, sometimes these games would end up kind of being reverse engineered for other consoles so like they would go from the computers to the to the Japanese and American console markets as well I don't think Gauntlet 3 did and then Gauntlet 4 was a Mega Drive game which was which kind of featured the original Gauntlet but also had this awesome new RPG mode which uh, which I thought was yeah probably one of Gauntlet's um, finest hours actually isn't it the, the series never quite um, made it back there did you follow the series through onto Dreamcast and N64 and, and uh, no definitely not. I did play gauntlet 4 quite extensively on mega drive um that was cool yeah you're right it was it was a great game it was kind of it's probably not this amazing but kind of the super mario world is super mario brothers yeah in in, in that it was just the you know it's the original game but amped up and and made as polished as possible yeah i really really love that but i never never took the series um any further unfortunately it just it never seemed it kind of it seemed from the sidelines like they were evolving it into a more traditional dungeon crawler. Yeah. At a time when there are already lots of other very good dungeon crawlers around, you know, kind of your Diablos and Baldur's yes. Gates, mm. um, or even something like Fantasy Fantasy Star Online, albeit from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. Was kind of. Um, you know, evolving the genre in, in a very different way by then. There was a reboot kind of game that came out a couple of years ago. It was also a, a PS Plus game. Um, yeah, it came out on PC, uh, uh, and yeah, it was it was it, yeah it was all right. But at this point, what Gauntlet had back in the mid '80s that made it kind of special and outstanding is has kind of proliferated to the point that it it doesn't quite have the same draw as it did then. But yeah, Gauntlet was such a such a massive deal back then. Ah, it really was. Yeah, I used to play my my Atari version of that, which I've recently watched footage of on YouTube, and it is so slow and monochrome. <laughs> but I used to play it for eight hour sessions at a time, and it probably ruined my GCSE exam results. Yeah, thanks, Gauntlet. So, before you tell us about your next pick, which is from a slightly a few further years down the line. Um, so uh, you, we described you as industry person earlier, uh, which uh, which you said was an apt uh, description. So mm, I am uh, a person. Are you a, a person is accurate, and yeah. you have worked in an industry. So yeah, I was hedging my bets really. Uh, but so obviously we've already heard of your early passion for video games, playing on your Commodore sixty four. Um, but was it was it something you fairly quickly thought that you'd like to actually do you know work within the industry making computer games somehow or did it fall in your lap somehow i i don't know if i ever thought about it at such a young age i I, it's definitely true that i fell in love with video games um with the c64 and it just it very quickly became a passion and a hobby if if not my life i think i I think i realized probably more in my teenage years that Mm. This was something that was going to define my life. Um, but I just kind of f- fell into it, really. It more kind of started after I left university. Um, and I realized that I developed a passion for writing through essay writing. Um, and, you know, um, if anyone's ever been to university, they might be um, familiar with this feeling where you, you kind of get home for that first summer. Uh, you don't have any coursework. You've kind of got 
the the world at your feet. You might not have got a job yet, mm. and but you you also kind of go back in time because you probably return to your parents' house where you grew up, um, having spent three years being quite um, kind of independent, socializing yeah, with people course. you've never met before, and you kind of sit there and think, oh, like what do I what do I do now? There was a plan for three years, and now I don't know what the plan is. Mm. Um, and out of sheer boredom, really, I just started writing uh, reviews for myself of, of uh, every game that I played that <laughs> summer, uh, just to keep myself amused. Uh, maybe I'm a strange person. I'm not sure. <laughs> Lots of other people would um, no, create I think that this kind is, of work for themselves. I don't know. So, well, this kind of what what we do here now, really. So. Mm, that's yeah, that's right. And I. I remember writing a review of um, Transformers on the PlayStation 2. Ah, yeah, that it's was a, uh, one, Atari of, one. one of several well-regarded Transformers games over the years. Oh, it was, yeah, it was really good. I think it was made by Melbourne House, maybe? I think, one, I think you're right, yeah. One of the last games that, that they made. Um, yeah, before they now. became Beam Software. Oh, of course, yeah. 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 Um, and I, yeah, I thought that was a really good game, and I wrote a review, which I was quite proud of, and submitted it to a, um, a kind of small independent reviews website, which was called NTSC UK. Ah, yes. Ah, well, yes, we've got a few links back there. Um, ah. our, our Darren Gargett used to be a regular on there, as as did I. Uh, we also had uh, uh, Sorian Dash recently on our Beautiful Joe show, who was who was uh, around that time. So oh, course, yeah, I know Saw well. Our paths probably crossed. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that they did. The, the message boards were very um, active in those days and friendly was, oh very friendly it was it was a wonderful place to be um when you know ev- even back then there were corners of the internet that were not nice to be in so yeah. um it was a great little haven for the kind of uk import gaming scene yes um such as it was then it kind of quickly fell apart as import gaming became less of a thing less relevant yeah yeah so I was probably reading your reviews back in... When, when would this have been? 2000 and... This would have been about 2004 to 2006. Yeah, right. Um, just reviewing wh- whatever um, PlayAsia and Lixang sent us and what nobody else wanted. So I remember reviewing some... Oh, God, some some really bad games that I just <laughs> accepted because I was desperate to write about things. Uh, but such, is, such is the way when you're doing that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed the um, work that I was doing, writing about games, and it quickly progressed from, from a hobby to a career. Um, I ended up writing freelance for Retro Gamer magazine. Uh, this was back when it was run by live publishing. Yeah, uh, before, I've still before got all those issues. Oh, I need to dig those out. And there's all these connections I've got that I didn't realise I had now. Yeah, I've, I've still got every issue of, uh, of all Retro Gamer in all three incarnations oh, wow. now. Uh, so, yeah, I'll just check out some of your work in there. So what, what, what did you write about that's in there? Uh, well, the first thing I pitched was a huge article about the MSX computer system. Nice. Uh, which I'm a huge, huge fan of. Uh, I've owned many of the computers over the years because they made lots of uh, variations of them, which were really interesting. Mm. Um, but nowadays I've just got two and a, and a wide collection of mostly Konami cartridges. Yeah, Konami, Konami were wedding. famous for supporting oh, the MSX yeah. too. Yeah. They made some brilliant games on that system. Um, so I pitched that and that was in progress, but actually um, in between the pitch and submitting the article, they um, asked me to review um, Super Mario 64 DS. Oh, right, yeah, of course. Uh, because they'd been sent a review copy, but they didn't own a DS, <laughs> and I did. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure how that came about, but they they were just happy for me to um, kind of fill in the gaps there. Um, so it's quite quite nice to have your um, 
one of your first kind of professional credits be reviewing Mario 64, um, albeit many years after it was first released? Yeah, of course. So some years before Transformers and, and reviewing for NTSC UK and all that, uh, did was was the Saturn? Were you, were you an early adopter of the Saturn and a, and a big fan of, of that machine as I was? Um, I was actually talking about this with a with a friend yesterday. Um, no, I, I can clearly remember when the Saturn first uh, was first kind of on the scene. I remember seeing these um, very um, obscure adverts on the sides of bus shelters. Yeah. And the adverts were, I can, I can see it right now, it was, it was like a black sphere with a kind of neon S wrapping mm. around the sphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but with nothing else on the poster. And I remember saying to a, a friend on the bus, like, what's that advert for? And he said, oh, it's for this new Sega console. And I just remember thinking, well, I'm not interested in a giant S with like nothing else to show <laughs> for it. Huh. Uh, and just like quickly, like even though I was a Mega Drive owner, it just didn't register on my radar, and and I'm sure you remember like all of the buzz and the excitement at that time was was about the PlayStation. Even though like nobody had played it, everyone just seemed to agree and accept that it would be the the next big thing. Mm. But I think I I discovered the Saturn probably about four years later. Right. Um, when I left school and went to college, I started um, not knowing what to do. I started uh, an IT course, basically just sitting around playing Grand Theft Auto on network PCs while mm-hmm. pretending to do um, work you're meant to be doing. Sounds all right. Um, yeah, it was, it was a good year of my life. Um, and there was uh, a fellow uh, games lover in that group, and he just he kept evangelizing the Saturn and telling me, you know, this is a system you absolutely have to be playing. But I could really see that the Saturn had a particular place, that uh, a niche that the other machines were not filling. I mean, yeah. the N64 didn't really have 2D games whatsoever. Not a lot, it just, no. It doesn't even seem to be capable of, of running them uh, because the hardware was kind of so engineered to run 3D gaming. Yeah. Uh, whereas with PlayStation, it was more um, a policy of Sony to to not really publish many 2D games because That's they right. wanted the machine to feel kind of futuristic. Mm. Um, so the Saturn ended up being this kind of 2D powerhouse that had amazing kind of arcade quality video games. So we had an amazing arcade in Wakefield, um, which we would I would go to like every lunchtime when I was at college. And you would go in there and it would have row after row of Neo Geo games and kind of Capcom, CPS2, CPS3 games. Heaven. Yeah, it, it was it was fantastic. So to, to find this console where, um, you know, I could get pretty close to arcade perfect version of Street Fighter Alpha 2 oh, on yes. my television... Um, I was I was convinced, but then of course the track that I've picked for this episode isn't a two D game at all. No. It's a three D game, and one that overstretched the system. Let's be honest. Oh, absolutely! And I I, I always wish they'd kind of made a sequel or a remake on oh, more powerful you, hardware. You and I should have been friends at at the time. <laughs> we should have been friends because this was the thing when the Dreamcast came out. Like one of the first things I was thinking about the Dreamcast was Sonic Team have to make. Burning Rangers 2 or Burning Rangers Plus or whatever because Burning Burning Rangers Rangers online yeah but yeah with with online co-op because it was this really cool game that you can tell us more about in a moment but it Mm. was it was falling apart on a technical level like the Saturn 
even even with the in-house expertise of Sega, which we, and they made the Saturn sing on a 3D level. We should say this because although you're absolutely right, Capcom um, were the were the people that really like did the Saturn the biggest favors. Sega's in-house team, the AM2, the AM3 side of things with their with their conversions of Virtua Fighter 2 and Sega Rally and all this, they were doing astonishing work. But by the time Burning Rangers came about. They just they were just stretching too far. They were going for this kind of uh, fully uh, 3D, not open world, but uh, large scale levels that were supposed to um, kind of evolve and destruct as the game went on because the whole point was you were fire rescue team and uh, yeah, so it was it was and it, the the glitching and the and the. The, the shakiness and the wobble, all the things that we now associate with PlayStation polygons uh, in some ways um, were, were in full effect here. Sonic Team, I mean, they're, they're not the um, studio they once were. I think they're just, in many ways, they're, it's, it's just, just a, name. a name that kind of stuck around. Yes. But much like, much like Ocean years before, actually, in those days around like 96 to 2000, yeah. if something had that Sonic Team badge on it, you knew you were in for a good time. And and also you knew you were getting something original and creative. They had this amazing kind of creative burst where every single idea they had was something you'd never seen before from like Nights into Dreams, Burning Rangers, uh, Choo Choo Rocket, Samba Day Amigo, yes. Fantasy Star Online. They're all completely different games and they were all amazing. Yeah. Um, so I, I, was, I was a huge Sonic Team fan and I think a lot of that affection for them still kind of stays with me today. And I always kind of, every time they make a new game, I kind of feel like, oh, could could this be the one that reclaims that glory? Uh, but I think too too much has changed behind the scenes for that to happen, really. Yeah, it, it is just a name. Although having said that, the, the Sonic team that exists now uh, makes a very good uh, Puyo Puyo Tetris game. So, you know, mm, that, is, that is true. They're, they're, they're good in their own right at what they do, but they are not the same sonic team as was back in the 90s it's just literally not the same people with the same uh with the same creative ethos so i do yeah. think a lot of that a lot of that um experimental vision that they had has traveled with yuji nako and his, his yes his um I, I want to say new studio but it's been going a few years now Pro-Pay. proper but I ju- they just don't seem to have the resources or the backing to take that vision and and polish it up to an amazing level as, as Sonic Team could in the 90s. I was trying to evangelise Let's Tap and Ivy the Kiwi back in my early podcasting days, but it fell upon mainly deaf ears, I have to say. Oh, they're, they're, they're really fun games. And in fact, um, some of their iPhone stuff is wonderful. Mm. Uh, there's an iPhone game mm. they did called uh, Flick Pig. Uh, I don't know if you played <laughs> this. Um, no, this I is a, it's, oh, it's, I really recommend it. It's a superb game. It's, it's a kind of uh, into-the-screen um runner game but with three pigs running at the same time and you can flick the pigs to um to stack on top of each other so you can have one pig and two pigs three individual pigs three stacked up in a column and the uh, the level design kind of changes with these pitfalls and fences and hazards that really require you to make different combinations of pigs as quickly as you can i like the sound of that which has nothing to do with video game music but it, it's 
I yeah. If, if anyone fine. takes anything away from this uh, podcast today, <laughs> go play Flick Pig on the iPhone. It's all right. We always we always uh, go off in, into gaming tangents, and that's fine. And, and I'm not generally that into uh, free runners, but if I was going to play one, it would definitely be involving Yuji Naka's team and uh, stacking pigs. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, um, Burning Hearts, Burning Angel. From, uh, from the Burning Rangers yes. soundtrack. Love it. Is, oh my God, it's much like the Sonic Team games of the time. It is just packed with fun and frivolity and uh, experimentation. It's kind of this jazz rock ballad um, with crazy kind of Japanese anime lyrics where half of the song is in Japanese and the other half <laughs> is randomly in English for no reason. It is. Uh, it's it's so much fun, and I remember um, if you bought the um, Japanese version of Burning Rangers on on Saturn, uh, you got a second disc, which was one of those tiny little mini CDs that no longer work with anything. Oh yeah, and it had three tracks from the soundtrack on there. <laughs> so I would I would walk around with my discman at the time and uh, and listen to these songs over and over again. The really kind of fun freewheeling music that they were making for for Burning Rangers. Every time I listened to it in isolation it would kind of draw me back in and make me want to go and play the game again, which is, I think, exactly what a good video game soundtrack should do. It should, it should remind you how much you love these games. This one definitely does. Come 
uh, Naofumi Hataya uh, and the unmistakable vocals of uh, Takanobu Mitsuyoshi, who I can't remember if we've, I'm sure we have featured, the, I'm sure we've played Daytona have, on here before. Yeah, he's the same guy who does the uh, famous Daytona lyrics. Absolutely, and, and various others for Sega. And, uh, and I'm sure I've mentioned before, but I'm going to do it again. Go on YouTube search his name and find him doing sort of live performances and he's just having the best time uh and yeah uh Do you know just... what? On, on that point actually i've, I've got i've got my mm. notes in front of me which i'm trying to um to look at without revealing that i have notes which i've just failed on um but i've written <laughs> down on in these notes it sounds like he's having the best time <laughs> Yeah, he always looks like he is, based on, on the footage I've seen. So yeah, Takanobu Mitsuyoshi, a real treasure of, of the, the video gaming world, I think. Uh, oh Yeah, also a composer, as well as just, uh, obviously here he's just doing the vocals, but uh, a composer of some note. Uh, so with Burning Rangers, did you, because uh, it was one of those games where you could f- play through the campaign and finish fairly quickly, but actually the game really came alive beyond the first completion in, in the way that we know that a lot of games do these days. But this was quite unusual at the time. It was also it was the same with Knights. A lot of people I remember who really didn't understand that Knights was this really deep, long lasting score attack game. They would kind of barrel through it and then go, oh. Is that it? Because <laughs> you could finish it in like half an hour. Um, and Burning Rangers was similar in that you could you could blast through the four levels uh, fairly quickly. Uh, there was some really sketchy 3D shooty levels as well, which which I think were probably a mistake. Uh, but then the game really opened up and it became this procedurally generated uh, game where you could there were more and more and more and more different characters that you could rescue and each one of them would send you a would send you a, a letter send you an email yeah. which I think would unlock based on the internal clock of the Saturn and things like that it was there was there was a lot more going on than initially met the eye yeah it was it was sort of a quite deceptively complex game in terms of how much there was to do and to to find um, and yeah, uh, you could you could get these kind of thank you emails mm. from the people you'd uh, rescued. Yes, uh, which for me playing the Japanese version was was kind of redundant. Oh, of course. Uh, but a friend yeah. of mine had the English version, so we would have fun kind of reading the emails. And there were little Easter eggs in there as well. You could rescue um, Clarice and Elliot from Knights. Uh, there were members That's of right. the development team in there who would write letters to you once you'd rescued them. Um, that was great fun. And also, yeah, the, the um, procedural generation of, of these mm. kind of random levels, which meant you could go on playing it over and over again. Yeah, there um, were billions of combinations, oh, literally. Yeah. Mm. Um, that was that was great fun, especially when coupled with the type of game that it was, because um, one of the great mechanics of Burning Rangers was um, that the, um, the the geometry, the, the, the walls of the areas that you're mm. exploring would visibly kind of heat up in yeah. front of you. Um, and then that was a warning that they might explode and fire would burn out. Um, I still so hear would, the sounds in my head right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you would have like a split second amount of time where you had to react by kind of back doing flip. a backflip or a dodge uh, or yeah. something to, to, to get <laughs> out of there. Um, so having randomly generated levels meant that you couldn't really memorize the routines of the game. That's right. Uh, and you really had to rely on your reactions. There was also a really nice um, audio touch where you had a, um, a kind of firefighting partner who would communicate with you over radio mm. and they would use voice acting where she would 
she would give you uh, guidance through these levels, telling yes. you which which way to go to get to um, to your objective. And it was mm. very simple commands: left, right, forward. Um, but me, me being a Japanese Saturn owner, so you could enjoy games in sixty hertz, etc., meant all of yes. the voiceover was in Japanese. So I had to um, I had to sit there with this Japanese to English dictionary, uh, memorizing what left, right, and forward were in in this foreign language. Um, which is a passion I could have taken a lot further, but I didn't. I just used it to play Burning Rangers. <laughs> Next up, we have another request from the forum. Sam Hot would like a track from Rayman 3. Rayman 3 built on the foundations of The Great Escape and was certainly one of the more inventive platformers for its time with fresh ideas around every corner. This game kept a lot of what made the previous entries unique, the whimsical characters and artistic environments, not to mention the French humour. The soundtrack is as varied and charming as even the latest Lemons and Oranges titles. Interrupting Begoniacs is an odd but appropriate title, since your debut in the Bog of Merc comes via a portal right above the poor witch's outhouse. The sweet music is only interrupted by the croaks and shrieks of the muddy wildlife, while the playful fiddle and humming cello welcome you to one of the most disgusting yet charming worlds of Rayman 3. This is Interrupting Begoniacs by Plume Leonard, Fred Leonard and Laurent Parisi. Begoniacs or Begoniacs. I'm not entirely sure, having not played Hoodlum Havoc. Have, have you played any of the 3D Rayman games? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, so, well, there's only there's so there's two 3D Raymans, aren't there? Two, which are two and three, because one is the original. Uh, and I think yes, that's, unless you count Raving then, Rabbits. Oh no, yes. Well, no, uh, but you know, maybe my first Rabbits game will be coming later this year. Oh yes. Now they've stuck some Mario in it. Uh, no, my 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 Rayman experience is uh, is a little of the very original, which was a huge hit on uh, PlayStation mm. and other systems, uh, and all of Origins and uh, and most of Legends. Well, yeah, I've completed Origins and uh, Oranges and Lemons, as we call them around <laughs> here. We covered Oranges back in uh, very early on in the Cane and Rinse podcast, issue twenty. Uh, we haven't been back to the series either 2D or 3D, but uh, yeah, I still recommend. They they keep coming out. Um, the or, or re-released or given away. Orange, oranges has been given away on uh, UPlay and. Uh, 
PlayStation Plus um, and Lemons is coming to Switch in a supposedly definitive edition later this year. Although, as has been pointed out, it's not really definitive because it doesn't have the touchscreen controls that the Wii U version had, <laughs> even though it has a touchscreen, but because you can't have the Switch docked and touch it at the same time. So makes sense. Anyway, I still reckon that uh, Rayman lemons will look absolutely fantastic on switch and would be a perfect game to uh, either have at home or or on the move mm, did you play the um the demo that accidentally snuck out the other week oh did, did that was it a switch demo yeah um nintendo europe accidentally um published the um the demo on the eShop oh, for a couple of was hours it, was that anything to do was that your fault <laughs> no I, I i was still working there at the time so i i quickly jumped on the eShop and downloaded the demo before it was removed um, <laughs> i like so that you... <laughs> so there's there's a handful of people out there who um who do have it and have played it and it's uh, it's basically the same demo that was on the wii u um, you know, with a traditional platforming stage and also the uh, musical um, Brown Betty uh, rhythm stage. Amazing. Which is uh, great fun. That is hilarious level, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, so, well, we've mentioned it now. We've brought it up. Uh, you've, you obviously, you're a, a big, uh, you, you're, you're like me. You, you, you just love the games and you will play the, the great games wherever they are. You were a big Sonic Team Sega fan for a while there on the Saturn. Um, but uh, rather than being one of these bizarre tribal warriors who can't possibly think outside of that uh, that part of the life you ended up working at nintendo i did indeed um another thing that just kind of happened really um i don't think okay. well, there are probably there probably are quite a few people who set out in life saying i'm going to work for nintendo and this is well how that's I'm going it. To do it yeah um, but it didn't really happen for me it was more you know i'd been a professional games journalist for um about eight years um, and was once it that done long? That, Goodness. It, yeah, I think I think was it was six, six years in house and a couple of years beforehand doing freelance stuff. I knew your name um, was familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was I was I spent six years on Games TM magazine, um, initially running their yeah. uh, retro section and then eventually running the whole magazine, which was fantastic fun. Um, another passion I didn't realize I had, which was to make a magazine. Um, I'd recommend it to anyone who enjoys. Um, creative endeavors it's, um, it's a great discipline it's the one job I always you know I, I don't know it, uh, without getting too confessional here like it's the thing that I kind of it seemed to be the most logical thing for me to do when I when I was like a teenager when I was reading Zap 64 mm. and then it took me until I was pretty much 40 to get my first professional games writing job because I'd never had the confidence to pursue it and then uh, and then that was it and now I'm back to being an amateur again well semi-professional I guess um, yeah, it seems kind of, it feels like that that's a world that I could and should have ended up in. But uh, but I'm glad that you got to do it. Yeah, it's, um, I, I always, I tell you what I always dreamed of working on was uh, CVG magazine. Yes. Uh, computer video games. The um, Paul Davies era, I'm going to. Absolutely the Paul Davies era. Uh, and I've been lucky enough yes. to, to meet Paul a couple of times and kind of yeah. freak him out by telling him how much of a, an inspiration he was to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's that's absolutely true. Um, yes. If it wasn't for Paul Davies' CVG and the likes of kind of Ed Lomas and Tom Guys and everyone else who was, was on that magazine, I think my early passion for video games may have kind of dwindled off into other things. Like I was getting into like Marvel comics around that time and discovering right. heavy metal music. But, you know, my interest could have gone anywhere, but... Mm. CVG really focused my passion and said, no, like, you know, video games are, are getting better every day. 
uh, and there's some really exciting stuff, especially coming out of Japan. Um, so that I think that really kind of accelerated my love of games. Not only did it allow me to get into things uh, like um, you know 2D Sega Saturn games, it kind of made me dream of being able to pass on that passion to other people myself. Mm. Um, so I, it it was this cool thing where I wanted to get into games magazines, but by the time I was old enough, CVG didn't exist anymore, so it ended up being Games TM, which I was very proud to work on. But the question was about Nintendo. <laughs> um, so no, no, it's all it's all relevant, and and the circuitous route through life is is one that most of us tend to take. So it's uh, entirely logical. You ended up from writing and and editing and publishing in 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 actual Nintendo of Europe. Um, yeah, that's that's right. Um, I think once you've once you've done video games journalism for a certain number of years, you kind of achieved everything you wanted to achieve. You know, I'd, I'd met mm. pretty much all of my video games heroes. I'd interviewed Yuji Naka and Miyamoto. I'd interviewed the um, makers of Shining Force, my favorite video games series. Oh, wow. um, so I just, I kind of felt like I'd done it all. I'd risen through the ranks and edited a magazine. So it was time to move on and do something else. And a job came up at Nintendo UK, which I thought, well, why not? apply for it, see what happens. And I ended up being a junior PR manager right? Uh, for three months. It didn't, it didn't last. Um, actually, um, it wasn't for me, actually. Hmm. Um, go, going from journalism to PR, I found quite frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very natural step for many journalists. Yeah, it seems to be. Um, because, it, you know, they're two sides of the same coin, and it's all about um, relationships between publishers and uh, critics, um, which was fine. I knew everyone in the games press at that point, which is about 2012, and could talk to them very easily. But I, I found it very frustrating not to be doing anything creative myself. So all of these fantastic yeah. games were kind of coming across my desk, and I wasn't really doing anything with them. And I, to, to their credit, Nintendo were fantastic about this when I when I brought it up as as something I was unhappy about. Uh, and I was very, very lucky that at that time there was another position going in the company on their digital team um, doing kind of content marketing. Hmm. Um, so I got moved across and started working on their YouTube channels, Facebook, Twitter, that sort of thing, um, and didn't really look back, actually. I found that great fun, ended up becoming social media manager and uh, kind of uh, a web guy as well, creating website content. Um, and had enormous fun for about five years, basically being paid to do silly jokes about video games on Twitter. Super. Um, which I can tell you is is a lot easier than writing uh, a 180 page magazine. Yeah. And you only have to think about 140 characters at a time. Uh, it's its own technical challenge and its own skill and discipline. But yeah, I think I think it is easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and probably pays better too. Um, yeah, yeah, and by uh, yeah by sheer happenstance, there's there's nothing in all this. Although this um, sort of seeming nepotism and incestuousness uh, must, from the outside, seem like maybe quite sinister. Actually, the fact that. Uh, you're on this show now and we have uh, Mikhail Kroder in our team who also used to work for Nintendo of Europe at the same time albeit in Holland or Germany I forget uh, Germany he was in Germany yeah, yeah. Uh, he's Dutch uh, and lives in Holland yes. now but uh, yeah um, that's that's pure coincidence as as it also is that uh, 
still with us, uh, other, our other Sound of Play presenter and still on the Kane and Rinse team but cannot do editorial, is working for uh, Nintendo in the USA, in America. So, And it, kind of what it says to me is, uh, as much as anything, that actually if... If it is people's, um, you know, obviously Ryan, Nash, yourself, Mikhail, all very talented, capable people, but actually normal gamers, right? You know, just people mm. who love video games, who took, you know, took what uh, skills and talents and passions they have and got into one of the most prestigious company, name, you know, in terms of name. Uh, like if you said, if, if you were going to say you work in video games and to say you work for Nintendo, it's like, you know, Nintendo is still in, in many people's ears and brains synonymous with video games. And as the Switch takes off, I think increasingly that's becoming the case again. Mm, yeah, it's, uh, Nintendo's um, a great company, actually, in that it, it really strikes a good balance between, I mean, I'm talking purely on the kind of marketing and sales side, which is what I worked in, mm. um, where they, they employ um, a huge number of um, kind of industry professionals who really know the discipline. You know, they've come up through um, university courses that teach marketing and PR and mm. everything else. So they can come in and they can do do the job as it as it is traditionally meant to be done. But then at the same time, Nintendo's also very good at employing uh, passionate gamers who you know know Nintendo's history and their product inside and out. Uh, and when you put those two groups of people together, you yeah. get really great results. Um, I've never worked at any other video game company yet until about a week from now mm -hmm. so i can't really say how that compares to other games companies but i think they've got the balance spot on at nintendo and now again to prove that you are not a uh, any kind of sycophant or fanboy we have uh, a track from that exists only on another platform holders machine That's right yeah yeah a playstation 3 game indeed this is uh this is demon souls let's uh cut to the chase on that one uh, a game which I think kind of gets overlooked these days because mm. uh, Dark Souls became so tremendously iconic. People tend not to talk so much about the kind of what is what is essentially the first game in the series, right? Yes, um, it absolutely. created it is, the yeah. the template, the rules, the the philosophy of what From Software were trying to do with those games. I remember it being very exciting when this game came out. It had a real kind of underground feeling and actually goes back to those kind of NTSC UK sort of days where you know it came out in Japan and Asia first and was you know it, no one even knew if there would be a, a western version so people were kind of talking about it on message boards and saying oh you should really check out this game it's something special something you've never seen before and I remember picking up the US version which was published by Atlas around I think it's, it must have been 2009 yeah, we weren't challenged with reviewing it on GamesTM um, because usually you you would be sent kind of review code only once a game was published in the UK. Yeah, uh, and at that time there were no plans for a European version. Or That's no right. Public plans. Seems incredible now, but <laughs> it was absolutely the case. Yeah, uh, but I just I just thought this game was was so special and so important that kind of um, pushed it through to do an import review in the magazine mm. um, and ended up giving it a ten out of ten. Uh, which is um, very kind of I don't I don't really know what the situation is these days. I imagine it's the same. Very rare for Games TM yeah. to to give top marks to something, and it was certainly the first uh, game I'd given that score to. And I only ended up giving it to two games in the 
entire time I was there. The other being? The other one was Super Mario Galaxy 2. Good call. If you've never played Demon Souls before, you can kind of see it. I, I hold those games in equal regard. Yeah. Uh, they're both masterpieces. But the music, um, the music mm. of Demon's Souls is strange because mostly it doesn't have any music. Uh, there are entire stretches of game which are kind of silence, really, or just ambient sounds and footsteps or the scrape of a weapon against the wall. Like yeah. It really, it lets the game world kind of speak for itself instead of um, kind of driving the drama through through music, which is the traditional way of, of doing things in, in games. But it does have music, um, mm. mostly in the kind of boss encounters where it will it will kind of ramp up and, and say to you, okay, this is the moment where you need to be on edge and have your wits about you. Having said that, the track that I've picked isn't from a boss encounter. It's not from the game at all. Um, it's from the kind of CGI um, intro sequence that what I might call a, an attract mode mm-hmm. that the game has, which um, I don't, I don't think they, they might have done it with the first Dark Souls, but I don't think they did it with the later ones, where they would, they would kind of lavishly produce this extended CG animatic to, to kind of play once you pop the disc in the drive. Yeah, we've been um, lamenting the, the kind of the, the, the demise of the attract mode in recent years. Yeah. Fewer games have them. The Onimusha games used to do this as as well. They had like these. They would hire like uh, outside studios to yeah. create amazing cartoons, for want of a better word, that kind of sold the illusion of of the the reality that the game was creating in, mm. in a way that the games themselves couldn't possibly do at that time because yeah. the the graphical power wasn't there. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe part of the demise of the attract mode is that they are less. They feel them less mm. necessary now that in game tech is is. Is, has come on such a I long way. I think so. I think so, definitely. I mean, as much as I loved Demon Souls itself as this kind of collection of gameplay systems that created something new and interesting, mm. I, I also really loved this attract sequence that yeah. they created. Um, sometimes uh, this probably sounds like utter nonsense, like a, a, a lie designed to make the story more interesting, but I would just pop the disc in and watch the intro sequence just for the enjoyment of that sequence itself. I've done it myself with Demon mm. Souls, probably more than I've played the game, in fact. So <laughs> I, I completely concur. And this music's really unsettling. Yeah, it's, it is frightening. The, the way it starts with this, these kind of pounding singular drum beats uh, that just escalate and, uh, and they get into this kind of repetitive chanting and it just keeps like ramping up the tension mm. which is so appropriate for demon souls uh, you know when and when you're watching this when you're listening to the music and you're watching the cgi at the same time and it's this lone warrior who's you know he doesn't look like a typical video games hero either like he, the the odds are against him and he doesn't look particularly well suited to the task and he's surrounded by skeletons and zombies mm. and a dragon flies over him it's a really kind of exciting um, spectacle but at the same time communicates to you that you've kind of the odds are going to be stacked against you when you come to play this game i think it's an amazing piece of work in that regard and from a composer that isn't all that prolific in games actually no um, I had a look into this guy. So he's called Shinsuke Kida, mm-hmm. um, who seems to have an enormous amount of credits in the Japanese film industry. Yeah. Uh, but not so much in video games. A couple of kind of Konami dancing stage games. I think it's a cave shoot 'em up, Goange. Ah, yes, yes. I think he's credited on that. Uh, but then, other than that, not very much. Um, mm. When they did Dark Souls, it went to uh, Motoi Sakuraba. Mm 
who um, is the composer of the of Shining Force Three, the best game of all time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a coincidence. Yeah, so uh, hats off to Shunsuke Kida for um, ramping up the tension. covered demon souls in Kane and rinse podcast issue 118 if you're one of those folks who listens to sound of play but doesn't listen to Kane and rinse you should listen to Kane and rinse uh, we cover games and we've been doing uh we're getting on for six years now we've covered best part of 300 games we're getting there and demon souls is just one of them and uh, i'm sure you'll enjoy that if you enjoyed that piece of music anyway Next up, we have a request from a very different sort of RPG. Well, I suppose if you didn't come from the world of video games, you wouldn't think it was that different. But uh, but we know, we know. Uh, Mauricio MM, canarince.com slash forum requests. One of my favourite ambient tracks from this game, which is the original Witcher. Moments of true peace are somewhat rare in the world of Geralt of Rivia, but they are to be cherished when the smallest chance presents itself, like, for instance, in the surprisingly charming murky waters, right before a tragedy falls into the village. A tragedy, a product of the underlying darkness that humanity harbours even in the most apparently innocent corners of their homes and their conscience. A running theme in this great video game and book series. This is River of Life.
So you may be aware that we've just started covering The Witcher series on the other podcast, Kane and Rince, and issue 274, we did cover the first The Witcher, which is a PC and Mac, never came to console, as we discussed back in uh, 2007. And that piece is by Pavel Blaschak and Adam Skorupa. Now we're here with our guest, Ashley Day. And next up, we've heard a little bit about Ash's uh, career and how for the last, uh, how many years now have you been at Nintendo just about to uh, finish there? Um, it's coming up on five years. Five years. That's a, that's a yeah. good and nice amount of time for one job, I think. Uh, I've always been, yeah. mine have all been either way too long or way too short. <laughs> five years seems like a, so it's a sensible plan. I think um, in video games as well, it's always good to see a generation through. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I started uh, about a week before the Wii U came out. Hmm. You've Best overseen Nintendo's most successful period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can be held responsible for the, uh, the the commercial shortcomings of what is undoubtedly still a wonderful machine. Well, certainly a huge um, critical success has um, an amazing lineup of software. Of course it does, um, yeah. That absolutely. I hope most of them will um, find new life on other systems in the future. I think uh, a lot of people feel the same way. You were saying there about Demon's Souls having been uh, kind of uh, somewhat overlooked. I think there's a lot of us who, uh, and certainly a lot of hardcore f- fans of this series who would love to see a PS4 uh, Demon's Souls HD, mm. Super HD remake. Uh, similarly, just as we are getting with, uh, obviously, Mario Kart's already done well. Splatoon 2 is is nominally a sequel but also contains very much uh, is the first game plus uh, and we're going to see various other uh, kind of portable remakes uh, Bayonetta's and Bayonetta 2 has been um, teased possibly by Platinum mm. Games not confirmed and Wonderful 101 they did that beautiful of teaser course. image where they, they're holding the Joy-Con controllers yeah and it uh, makes and perfect I- sense it, it really does yeah those, those, I think there are many Wii U games that deserve um Another day in the sun. Absolutely. I think it's inevitable for lots of them. Most of the development costs are are, are done, and and especially for those games that where the development costs weren't recouped or or not much more than uh, this is this is their chance to go again on a system which has already sold a quarter of the amount of units that Wii U sold in its lifetime, I think, something like that. So uh, I should I should stress possibly in case anyone from Nintendo is listening that I know nothing of any plans other than uh, what's been announced in the public domain. And that's absolutely true, actually. When you, when you work at oh, um, yeah. a local market in, at, like, at Nintendo, um, mm. they're very good at making sure people in those local markets only know about something as and when they absolutely need to. Yes. Um, so it's quite good fun, actually. Like Sometimes games can be announced um, and you had no idea they existed until the day everyone else does. Yeah. Yeah, completely understand that. Uh, having had friends in the industry for many years, uh, I'm quite aware how it works. I think you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk from people who have never worked inside games uh, about collusion and conspiracy and stuff. And actually, it's so not like that. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. like you 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 edited a magazine for years, and and we should. I'd love to just interview interview you about that for an hour at some point. Just just to talk yeah. about and I'd be dis- happy to do that. Actually, that would be great. Dispel some of the myths about. Uh, game games reviewing and stuff because having done it even for a year and having had friends who have done it for decades like so many of the assumptions that people make about 
games reviewers and reviewing games are just so far off the mark. Yeah, it's, um, it's funny actually. It's frustrating and and humorous at times, but also frustrating <laughs> when when people are accusing you of certain things. Not that oh, I've yeah. had this directly, but uh, but you know, obviously, a certain movement came out of certain things, and a lot of those things were just yeah, uh, were not things that needed addressing in the first place. Really, they oh. were the product of fevered imaginations in a lot of cases. This is an agenda for another day. We're talking music today. And uh, yes. what I was trying to get at was that um, this is your first Nintendo pick. Yes, that's right. Um, I think um, as as part of all of my selections, actually, um, on this episode, that I tried to pick um, games from different eras of my life that kind of represent kind of how important video games have been to me. Mm. Um, in that, not just in my career, but kind of in my development as a games fan. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't be right if I um, didn't include something by Nintendo. Uh, and you're spoiled for choice, really, with Nintendo games. Uh, this, you, you could do probably 100 episodes uh, just on Nintendo game music. It's, it's an incredible library. I just kind of went with the first thing that popped into my head, to be honest, and that was um, Rhythm Tengoku, the the uh, the original Rhythm Heaven on Game Boy Advance. Yeah. Um, sadly, uh, import only. But there are ways of playing most of the uh, the famous levels now, thankfully, thanks to the remix game that came out for uh, 3DS. That's right. Um, and if you if you visit any um, Japanese arcades, um, you'll also find it. Uh, there's a Sega arcade game. That's right. Based on the GBA version, which you can. Um, you can still find actually in yes. in most Japanese arcades. It's it's fairly popular and prolific, um, and very kind of easy to understand. You, there's no language barrier because yeah, it's basically a one button music game. Yeah. I as as a big import gamer, I played Rhythm Tengoku mm. um, as soon as it was released. Um, I'd been a, a big WarioWare fan previously, and this was this was a rhythm action game by the WarioWare team, which just sounded like a fantastic idea to me. Yeah, I think I originally played it using the Game Boy Advance slot of the DS because the the DS had already been out for quite some time by the time yeah. this game was released. Yeah. But then later on, um, somebody, um, my girlfriend at the time, bought me a Game Boy Micro, which Perfect. was was a great little machine because you could just slip it into your uh, pockets, like alongside your wallet or your phone, and you know, it just fit in nicely. And that basically became a, a Rhythm Tengoku machine for me. Glue it in the slot. Uh, yeah, I think it might still be in there right now. And, and what what a brilliant game Rhythm Tengoku was. Um, I think I think the there are two things that it does brilliantly. The, the first is taking that kind of micro game um, style that WarioWare had and applying it to to the rhythm action genre. Mm. Uh, so you're kind of working out these little kind of rhythm um, vignettes, I suppose. Yeah, uh, tiny little. Um, adventures or jokes yeah. that rely on timing to solve them. Uh, a brilliant comic invention that I, I don't really think has been... Um, I don't think it's been copied, let alone bettered. Um, in, in, uh, inimitable, I would say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you would have to be this collection of people with all of their kind of collective works that they'd, they'd already done to come up with something like this. Yeah. But the the other genius thing they they did was if if uh, if there are people listening who've never played this game, um, is that you would you would play about four or five of these rhythm micro games uh, in a row, and and master those one at a time. It wasn't always easy. No. Um, 
And then once you'd done that, you would get a remix stage, which took um, all of those previous mini games and kind of edited them together. It's like a mashup stage. Yeah, amazing. Which, when you consider that you know this is a music game, so not only did they have to edit the gameplay together, they had to come up with a musical track that made those different kind of uh, rhythm games kind of work as a cohesive whole. Uh, I think that's an utter work of genius. Mm. Um, and I, I, for for this track, I've picked I've simply picked Remix One because that's the first time you encounter this genius in the game and i think for anyone who's played it it just sticks with you oh i can forever absolutely attest to that yes Mm -hmm. occasional earworm absolutely let's uh let's inflict it upon everybody else so this is a remix one from the original rhythm tengoku by uh, Tsunk, I think is how you're probably supposed to say it. Mm. Sometimes has a, a little male symbol to the right of it as well. Never quite understood, uh, <laughs> but there it is. <laughs> like Prince. Yeah, like a bit like Prince. Uh, sound design by Masami Yone. Uh, and yes, Rhythm Ten- Tengoku, that first game by N- Nintendo SPD, but also uh, it's kind of a co-development with the, the music studio JP Room Recordings. We talked a lot more about this in uh, Kane and Rince podcast issue 45. I can't believe we did that in our first year. Mm-hmm. It's so long ago now. Uh, we talked about we talked a lot about the first one, uh, but we also talked about the DS game and the Wii game. Uh, um, and as I say, you can now 
play the Mega Mix kind of version on your 3DS or 2DS XL. I should say, you know, as much as I uh, I teased you about overseeing the the not the most successful console in Nintendo's history with with in your PR work, uh, you also there throughout a fairly uh, excellent period for the, for the 3DS mm. for the Nintendo's handheld uh, side of things where they've released. Goodness knows how many iterations of that console and uh, and a lot of completely essential uh, games. I know from Ryan know that you don't just get them all for free, right? Um, not all of them, and it, and it depends depends who you are uh, yes. and your position in the company. Um, if if there is a reason for you to um, play a game and understand it, then you you may get it in advance of release, which is a, a great privilege. So you gave credit there to Sunk. Yeah, and but also to sound designer Masami Yone. Yes, uh, which I, I think is particularly important for this yes. game, um, because um, the the recording that we've used there is a is a perfect um, playthrough yeah. of, of Remix One with. I think I think from the sound of it, there may be one mistake in there. I'm not sure, but definitely right. like as close to perfect as you can get. Yeah, um, and that's really important because um, the kind of the the various sound effects that are created yes. when you get those button presses right contribute so much to that track. If you were ju- if you were to just record the um, the mm-hmm. audio track without the button presses, you would have fifty percent of of what that composition really is. Completely, yeah. When we featured, we we had a request before from from uh, I think it was the Monkey Clock stage from the Wii game. Uh, rhythm Heaven Fever, mm. uh, and and yes, I think we did the same thing where we we uh, editor Jay kindly uh, nicked the uh, the audio from the YouTube video of somebody playing it well, so we get the uh, the monkey sound effects. Because yes, without that, you get some perfectly pleasant but uh, slightly incomplete sounding uh, kind of muzak. But add in the silly sound effects, and it it really does. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's the icing on the cake (laughs) on a delicious audio cake Uh, now from another uh, cutesy platformer we have a request from the excellently named Foramite Dingle Dongle who says in the wake of Crash Bandicoot the insane trilogy I've decided to post a song from a less well known platforming mascot Kingsley's Adventure is what I think of when I look at medieval influences in my childhood. The game has a clunkier croc-like control system, but what I really love were the storybook vibes and soundtrack. The track I've selected is the song, which is a theme that sticks in my head when I think of a classic royal palace. This is Alistair Lindsay's Carrot Castle. Thank you. 
So yeah, as is alluded to there by Dingle Doggle, who requested that, um, perhaps not that many people played Kingsley's Adventure. Uh, neither Ash nor I did. We know that. Um, but it was a uh, in that real uh, when there was that real glut of kind of um, wannabe mascot platformers on the PlayStation One. This was 1999, so we were being snowed under with uh, with with crocs and uh spiros and crashes and and yeah various others this was uh, from the psygnosis stable um but yes he was a little night fox fellow but more than that i couldn't really tell you i'm afraid folks yeah i i i took a look at this yeah. um I, I, first of all to listen to the music track which um is is very nice the music track yeah. reminds me of the um the sea shanty. Uh, what should we do with a drunken sailor? Yes, it absolutely it's, got that. It's got the same kind of like. It, it, I wouldn't be surprised if that's intentional. It's got that in there for sure. Yeah. Um, so I thought I thought it was a really fun track. Um, but I started watching some uh, YouTube videos of the game out of curiosity. Now I remember the box art mm. uh, because around this time, about a year later, I started working in a um, video game shop. Um, ah, you've much- done that too. What have you done? Yes. <laughs> Everything I have done in my adult life has been video games in one way or another. Um, so I worked good. at a much-missed game station Yes. Um, from 2000 until about 2005. Oh, that was that was the best era of game station because, uh, well, it was for the Brighton branch. Anyway, I can say that. Uh, I used mm. to go in there a lot and they had a good retro section and they used to get all the obscure games in that game didn't bother with. And yeah, it was a good oh, store. It was brilliant. When I, when I first started, it was still an independently owned business right and the shops were very much left to their own devices mm. um so we had a huge uh, retro section full of 16-bit classics yeah. at the time um we had import games for um, yeah. it would have been uh, dreamcast right then and neo geo pocket um so it was, it was great fun to work there and there were no rules so we played music really loud yep. we ate pizza at the counter oh, that's why those shops always stank yeah <laughs> yeah um, it was it was a long time before they started um, implementing a kind of uniform policy across across the whole um, country. Um, but as as an employee, it was great fun to work there in those early kind of primitive days. I bet. And I, I can yeah, I can remember um, stacking this particular game on the shelves over and over again as people would buy it and trade it in. <laughs> and you, it, to to be honest, it was a game I kind of ignored because. Yeah, you know, going by the box art, it was yeah, it was like like you kind of alluded to there. It was just yet another three D mascot character on the PlayStation mm. at a time when you know Mario sixty four and Banjo Kazooie existed on the N sixty four. Yeah, um, so it never really felt necessary as somebody who owned all the consoles to kind of dip my toes into those waters i felt exactly um, the same yeah that's i was trying like i played a demo of croc and croc was by argonaut who obviously had a, a history of you know making Star Fox with nintendo and and other amazing things on computers but croc just seemed so lacking in any of the charm and and uh, charisma of of the the nintendo like you know uh, mm. ips that it uh, just uh, yeah i did not want to spend money on it but uh, I mean, equally, I can I can see if um, if you were quite young and you only had I say only if if the only console you had was yes. a PlayStation at the time, then of course oh, then you yeah. would you would want to sample some of these games. Um, so there's probably a whole group of people who have you know much like I have nostalgia for Burning Rages on the Saturn, and most people have probably never heard of it. Or yeah. I'm sure I'm sure the informed people listening to this podcast have many of them. That there will be. Um, yeah. There will be a whole kind of um, group of people who have nostalgia for these 
PlayStation no platformers doubt. who um, they could converse for hours and I wouldn't have a clue what they were talking about. Well, we've um, seen the, the, the nostalgia for Crash is huge because yeah. the, the Insane Trilogy is, is doing very well. It's getting mixed reception as kind of Crash did at the time, although it was mostly well received. There were some naysayers. Uh, and this is this seems to be a very nicely uh, presented remake, but uh, but I think it's for some people it's showing up kind of the the, the age and the flaws of the original game. My, my most recent encounter with Crash was the uh, the Uncharted Four sequence, and uh, I didn't manage to get to the end of that, that stage. So, uh, but yeah, Croc was a massive hit. Like uh, although it was this seemingly. Yeah, for me, rather clunky and charmless attempt at a 3D platformer. It was it was on the biggest selling console of the time, and it was a cutesy 3D platformer where you got to go around open areas collecting shiny gems. And Spyro the same. Like Spyro reviewed better than Croc, but it was, a, it was such a big hit. Those those games sold a lot of copies. I did I did take a look at this one as I was saying, and it, mm. it seems to suffer from the same problem as a lot of um, PlayStation platformers did of not having very much draw distance. Oh yeah. So, yeah, so it's in these kind of very dark environments, so they only have to concentrate on drawing the, the oh, yes. immediate geometry in, in front of the characters. But that sacrifice seems to have allowed them to design really kind of colourful um, and detailed um, characters and bosses. You know the, the the main character himself has a real like cartoonish charm to him. Yeah. Um. So I think we, given the um, technical limitations that they had, Cygnosis probably made the right call there on on how to approach this um this game. Yeah. My my favorite one of that era is actually the original Ape Escape, which came out of Sony itself in Japan, and mm. uh, has similar technical shortcomings but uh, literal physical shortcomings um but uh, but they in- introduced the uh, the rather charming uh, twin analog control system so it was uh, the first game i think where a, uh, a, a the the pre dualshock controller with the twin analogs was uh, was mandatory uh, obviously that series continued on on ps2 you can actually get ape escape 2 on ps4 as an upscaled ps2 re-release and uh, yeah for cutesy platformer fans i actually recommend checking that one out I also recommend checking out, listeners, our forum, canarince.com slash forum. You should also follow us on Twitter, at canarince, of course. If you use the hashtag sound of play, we're probably more likely to uh, dig out and remember uh, your requests for this show. You can also do it on the Facebook page. I'm not sure more than one or two of you have, but facebook.com slash canarince. Give the page a like. Uh, more, Well more than a thousand of you have done that now. And you can request your favourites. And as you've heard, we'll continue to include a selection of those in the playlist for each regular Sound of Play podcast. Uh, please subscribe if you don't already to the Sound of Play podcast. And if you can leave us an iTunes review or rating or a review or rating somewhere else, if uh, that's more appropriate, if you don't do the iTunes thing, if you just want to tell people on social media or in real life, that's good too. And as I mentioned some time ago, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Rinse, and you can support us financially with a dollar a month or more if you wish. And it really does all go back into doing what we do because what we do while we completely love it it takes up an extraordinary amount of time uh, during which we can't be doing jobs and stuff and that's the way it goes now before we hear about your final pick which is another favorite of mine uh ash you're, you've done a marvelous job uh, i'm really pleased to hear that actually. yeah 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 absolutely uh 
have you got anything uh, obviously we've, we've heard about your career and it's not like you're uh, a guy who's coming on here saying you know hire me because you've got another job lined up but uh, but if you know if people want to follow you if people want to see what you do where should they go yeah so absolutely the best place to find me is on twitter i'm um as a social media um i don't know a person who gets paid to use social media yeah uh, which uh, again is is a, a great privilege like how lucky i am to have such a stupid job um, I'm all over Living Twitter. Living the dream. I, I really love it. Yeah. It's it's great fun. And eventually I'm going to get caught and found out. And they'll be like, why do we give this guy money to do something so fun and so easy? Uh, but right now it seems to be going okay. Um, so people can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's at Jelly Scare. Um, I get asked a lot why it's yeah, Jelly Scare. Please. Um, the truth is uh, they are two words that... Uh, seem to not be used very often together, so the username is is usually available. Right, that's, that's all there is to it. People okay. ask me if it's to do with like slimes and Dragon Quest or anything like that, uh, which would be lovely because I'm a huge Dragon Quest fan. Um, no, it's just two stupid words, and I, I like to imagine a little scared jelly, uh, kind of quivering and wobbling in fear. Figures, um, imagining a little cartoon jelly with eyes, kind of the mm. you know the rareware style cartoon googly eyes yes um amuses me and if i can amuse myself then that's at least yeah it's half, half the job done, done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah Je- jelly scare on twitter is is where to find me uh, but yeah as you mentioned i'm also starting a, a new job so i've been um uh brave enough to to leave what i think is probably a dream job for a lot of people yeah. at, at nintendo uh, but life is taking me on on a new adventure now I'm, uh, I'm moving home to Yorkshire mm. uh, for the first time in about 11 or 12 years. Um, I'm originally from Wakefield, as I, as I said um, at the beginning of this show. Yeah. And Wakefield does have its own, uh, what I consider to be a superstar games developer. Certainly does. Uh, and that's, especially if you grew up in the Amiga age. Yes. Um, or if you like indie games now, and that's uh, Team 17. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, joining the team, as it were. Yeah. Um, Probably by the time this episode goes out, I will already be there uh, getting stuck in as, as a community manager there, um, working with uh, a couple of great community managers who are already there uh, and helping to, um, I don't know, maybe impart some of the things I've learned and learn a few things from them too uh, and do some some great stuff with what is um, turning into like an amazing, in my opinion, kind of indie game curator, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Team Seventeen has, has had a a, a a unique history. Yes, um, they started out as uh, an Amiga specialist making games for no other system, but that I think because they were just such great fans. Well, even of the before system. that, they were in the, they were seventeen bit software. They were a demo. Yeah, that's right. Distribute and, and maker in and distributor. The, um, the brilliant arcade that I um, paid lip service to um, yeah. earlier in the episode in in the centre of Wakefield behind Argos. If you went outside of that arcade and took an iron stairway up to the top of the building, right. uh, there was 17-bit software. Oh, wow. Uh, right there. And I used to go in there and uh, pay 99 pence or a pound um, for a, a shareware floppy disk yes. of whatever took my fancy at the time. Uh, they also sold the occasional CD32 uh, CD game mm. uh, at 
ridiculous prices really oh, really? <laughs> for, um, not a reflection on on the store but i think there are a lot of cd32 games that re- really weren't worth um yeah console prices That's... i remember buying microcosm for about 30 pounds and that wasn't, wasn't a 30 pound experience no the uh yeah the, the backdrop to it may have been a, a good amiga demo uh, but mm. <laughs> as a as a game not so much uh but but Team Seventeen games on on the Amiga were were widely considered to be the best you could you could get on the system, and especially in terms of exclusives. Um, the yeah. likes of um, Alien Breed, which is uh, what the feature track will be from next. Uh, Project X, Super Frog, uh, Assassin, a lovely, uh, yeah, Assassin. Like if you wanted um, kind of a, a kind of different take on Strider on your Amiga. Like Assassin was the place to go. That Particularly so the fun. re-release because uh, they used to do this interesting thing where they would, rather than just as we, uh, this brings us full circle in a way. We were talking about uh, software houses uh, re-releasing their games on a budget label. Well, what Team Seventeen did was they didn't just re-release them; they remixed them and improved them for their mm. budget re-release. So we got uh, much more playable versions of Alien Breed, Project X, and Assassin on the second go around, which was really cool. Yeah, I mean that just wouldn't happen now because there'd be patches and DLC yes. and this, this, that, and the other. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a great little thing in those days. Um, yeah, so they were they were this Amiga powerhouse even long after kind of Commodore had uh, gone bankrupt mm. and, and and existed no longer. Team Seventeen were still going and pushing the technical boundaries of the system with their. Uh, like Alien Breed 3D games, which yeah. were kind of like Doom and Quake clones on a system that you never imagined could even do such a thing. Um, and of course, they um, they helped develop and publish um, Worms. Well, absolutely. I was going to say Worms because obviously that was such a hit for them that it ended up shaping their next 20 years pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of, um, for a while, kind of took over. It became not only uh, a huge success, but the bread and butter for a, a studio that kept expanding and sp- expanding in its headcount. Um, and I think the games industry became a very different place around the kind of PlayStation 2 era, it became a lot more expensive to produce and publish games. Uh, so Team 17 had to evolve with the times. So I think the, the number of games they were producing... Um, kind of reduced this yeah. kind of core uh, Worms series, which is absolutely brilliant. It's one of my favourite games. Yeah, they're really all, cool. Multi- time. Local multiplayer especially, but also online uh, mm, are still yes. a, a huge amount of fun. Uh, so yes, first instruction. To, this is where we abuse our little links into the industry, and obviously there's nothing we can do. But first thing is... Uh, can you get a version of Worms on Switch, please? That'd be great. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> I I agree that that would be perfect. Yeah. Uh, I, w- I would really love to see that. You know, the way you can take those Joy-Con controllers off off the uh, the Switch and yeah. have a little multiplayer Properly game. Properly play it in the, the pub kind of game, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree. It'd be wonderful. Uh, and Team 17, I've got a number of Switch games in development right now, so that's going to be... Um, great. That's going to be a really nice natural transition for me. Um, to be working on kind of like Overcooked and Escapist 2. Of course. And, uh, Yaku's Island Express, which is an amazing Oh, that looks really, really... Pinball platform Yeah, game. yeah, yeah. Uh, I forgot I that was Team I was, 17. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I got, I got to play that at E3, and it was great fun there to t- literally tear me away from the PC I was playing it on. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, which, yeah, br- brings me to my final point on Team 17, that since the age of distri- digital distribution and Kickstarter, which has really kind of revolutionized mm. um, kind of uh, the way video games are, are made by, by smaller teams, they've kind of gone full circle now. And yes. they can they can have this variety of interesting software developed by satellite studios all over the globe. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm really happy to be joining them at this time where they've got this this amazing variety of different games. Um, yeah, so that's um, that's going to be really good fun, and I, I encourage, um, you know, anyone who's listened to this and has and has thought, oh, these five tracks that this guy has picked are an amazing five tracks. I really like. <laughs> yeah, this this guy represents my tastes. Um, well, first of all, that'd be amazing because I'm not sure there's anyone else who quite fits my. Um, ridiculous um, you know, patchwork tasting games, but maybe there is. Um, I think you and I are singing from similar hymn sheets. Oh, well, brilliant. Um, so, yeah, those people, as well as following me on Twitter, I definitely recommend that they um, look into Team 17 and, and see what they're up to and keep an eye on some of the things that we're going to be doing in the next uh, year or so, because certainly in my little corner of, uh, of the team, uh, I've got some fun plans, and I hope to be doing some uh, some interesting things uh, that really kind of celebrate the the rich variety of games that they have. Great! I'm really glad to hear it, and congratulations. And I think, yeah, what what uh, what a perfect pick to sort of wrap up this podcast, this sound of play, and to yeah introduce your your new working life and and home life by the sound of it in uh, oh, yeah. at team 17 and yeah just a little about this particular version because this is not although this this tune is incredibly familiar to me this is not the version i know no absolutely not so this is uh, this is a track called alien breed from the game alien breed which uh, i think will no matter what team 17 do this will always be my favorite game of theirs because it, it was just so much fun and uh, quite similar to Gauntlet in in a way, which we we covered yep, earlier in the very episode. Much. This kind of top down maze game where you're assaulted by legions of aliens all at once, uh, and you could play two player co op. Um, really wonderful game, and and sound played uh, a big part in it. The um, I really love the sound effect you would get when you pick up a key card. Yeah, um, it's just it's just a very simple kind of um, almost like a Pavlovian thing. It was. Just the, the sound effect that told you like something good has happened, and it's a relief because you're going to need that key card to try and get to. Of course, in the safety. original version, it was possible to not have enough keys to oh, yeah. get off the level, and there was insta death if you didn't get out of the uh, self destruct sequence in time. Yeah. Which it's these are all things that game. these are all things they fixed in in the the ten pound ninety nine re release, which was <laughs> which was much appreciated. They also had a uh, they had a mother style. Obviously, it's as well as Gauntlet. This was ba- this was essentially Aliens meets Gauntlet, which were two of my favourite things as an eighteen year old. So this made this made perfect sense. Uh, they also had a mother style computer voiceover, who I believe I read somewhere at the time was literally a woman who was working in the office at the time, or somebody's mum, one of the yeah, two. This, yeah, so that was uh, the computer, which uh, I think the computers are called the uh, called Intex systems. Yeah, you and could play Pong hear, uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, they, were, they were wonderful little kind of green screen, like ATM style computers yeah. where you could go and upgrade your weapons and look at a map and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and also kind of gave you some respite from the aliens because yes. it paused the action while you looked at them. 
um, that computer was voiced by, uh, I believe it was Lynette Reed. That's it. Who That's the name. Was the, um, she was the mother of Alistair Brimble, who was the uh, right. composer of the music. Oh, well, there you go. Um, and uh, in the version that we're about to hear, this is a uh, wonderfully kind of remixed and re-orchestrated version of the mm. track um, created by Alistair uh, in 2014 uh, for an album that was kickstarted um, called The Amiga Works which is um, a great variety of Alistair's tracks, um, not just at Team 17, but at uh, Codemasters and other publishers uh, for all of his Amiga games. Um, the um, the album is uh, still available. I mean, Al- Alistair has kindly agreed um, that we can use this version of the track on the show. So Thank you. Um, it's, um, it's only right that we give him a plug. Um, if, you, if you're into Amiga music or Team 17 or... If you hear this track for the first time and you've never even played those games, I encourage you to take a look at his website, which is alistairbrimble.bandcamp.com, where you can listen to all of the tracks for free and also purchase them if you want to. Um, and yeah, this is this is a brilliantly kind of remixed and modernized version of that track, uh, and quite wonderfully also edits in uh, some of the samples of uh, of Lynette's uh, uh, Intech Systems voiceover. Um, which, if you've if you played the game, it's um, it's a really nice nostalgic touch. I think it is very much so. Well, Ash, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about your your gaming life and career. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's it's been an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you. And I would love to. Yeah, I'll have you back on and pick your brains in a separate cast uh, coming to Kane and Rinse soon about uh, what it's like to be a games magazine writer stroke editor. Uh, but until then, we'll leave you with Alistair Brimble and this uh, fantastic Alien Breed theme. And uh, we'll pick up with Ryan Heyman in the next Sound of Play.
systems. systems.